We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm extremely honored to introduce to you my special guest this week, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Kathleen, first of all, welcome to A Current Life. I'm really pleased to be with you. Nice to, nice to talk to you, Jimmy. Thank you. Uh, uh, what I'd like to do is give you a proper introduction, so if you'll bear with me, uh, for our listeners, the show goes into over 180 countries and uh, throughout the, obviously throughout America. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend is the eldest child of the late U.S. Senator and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy. She was the state of Maryland's first woman lieutenant governor, and prior to that role, she served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the United States. Ms. Townsend also spent seven years as the founder and director of the Maryland Student Service Alliance and is a senior vice president of Rock Creek Hedge Fund. Ms. Townsend is chair of the Institute of Human Virology and serves on the board of directors of the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation, the chair of the Leadership Center for the Common Good, and is on the board of the Robert Kennedy Memorial, the Center for American Progress, the Brady Campaign, the Center for International Policy, and the YMCA of New York City and Lightbridge. She is the vice chair of the annual Future of Science Conference held in Venice, Italy. And she is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Enter America American Dialogue and is a senior advisor to the State Department. As you can see, Kathleen wears many hats. And one more that I would like to mention to our listeners is author. Her book, Failing America's Faithful, How Today's Churches Mixed God with Politics and Lost Away, was published by Warner Books in March of 07. And I should tell you that I read the book, and I enjoyed it, and we're going to talk a little bit about the show. But, Kathleen, welcome to the show. It's great to talk with you and be with you, and thank you for inviting me. Well, let's start with kind of growing up and what you were like as a little girl. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Um, (laughs) Well, I had a great childhood. Uh, I was very lucky to, you know, grow up in a large Irish Catholic family just at the time when... My uncle was running for president of the United States, and John Paul II was the, the pope. So, you know, in the, 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 in the country, in the world, it, it was a terrific time. And I, you know, I grew up in a, to- in a family that believed in service and politics and knowing what was going on. Now, you were in Greenwich, Connecticut, or were you actually in McLean, Virginia? Where actually, you um, that's time? interesting you asked about Greenwich. I was born in Greenwich on the 4th of July. Uh, my mother is, has a great sense of timing, but I really <laughs> only uh, stayed in Greenwich for a month. Uh, my father uh, was studying for the bar exam, so after he took the bar at the end of July, uh, my family moved, the three of us moved to Washington, D.C., um, where he could work in the federal government. Um, and what I... You know, we lived in Georgetown for the first uh, five years of my life, and then we moved out to Hickory Hill, which is where my mother and father lived lived later. Um, and this was the place where John, uh, Jack Kennedy, and Jackie lived uh, for a while. It was the place, you know, where Justice Jackson lived. And during the Civil War, actually, Hickory Hill was the home of um, or the headquarters for General uh, General McClellan. So it it's, has a storied storied history. Um, but what I, what I love describing about one example of my childhood, my mother believed very strongly that we should know what my father was doing so that 
unlike other mothers of three and four and five year olds when who took their children just to the playground to play on you know play in the sandbox and swing on the swings, climb on the jungle gym, my mother would take me and a couple of my brothers to the Senate racket committee hearings where oh. my where I think my first words were I refused to answer that question on the grounds that may tend to incriminate me. <laughs> Well, you know, we had similar backgrounds in one respect, and that was that my father had me grow up in a courtroom because my mom passed away when I was very little. Oh, I'm she was so a practicing sorry. attorney, and and um, you know, I would spend a lot of my early years just watching him try cases and be in court, and it really does help shape kind of somewhat of, of you know, it gives you a kind of a feeling of first of all, if you know what your father does and you understand it, it gives you a perspective that may, it may have you choose that you want to go the other way, which I did, but, uh, <laughs> you know, in your case, it certainly, you took a lot of that with you and you had such great role models in your life. What was it like to be the eldest of 11 children? Well, I, I just to describe a little bit more about, you know, my, my parents also very much believed that we should know what was going on. So around the dinner table every night, we were quizzed on current events. It was always important to sit in a particular place, if you sat right on the right side of my mother, you just had to read the front page, but as you went around the table, you actually had to know a lot more that was going on. And when we became, t- when we turned 12, we actually had to recite three current events. And we were then also quizzed on history. On every Sunday, we had to uh, either recite a poem or do a report on somebody famous in history. And my mother thought this was such a terrific idea that when she d- drove the carpool, she would insist that the everybody in the carpool be able to recite current events. <laughs> so you can imagine the kids would say, oh, no, Mrs. Kennedy is driving. What happened today? So did you have to know, first of all, all the capitals of all the states and all the different geography? Because we were terrible at that. We had six kids. Oh, yeah. We sit around right. the table, and, you know, you weren't allowed to get up from the table until you knew the answer to the question. Uh, I mean, absolutely. You had to know every all, all of those things. Although, you know, my daughter uh, learned a song, so she can sing a song to all the capitals of, of, the, of the states. It's really quite impressive, in alphabetical order. That's probably the way she taught herself. And, you know, yeah, well, it's I think like... the school figured out this sign. And it's, <laughs> I don't know, but anyway, it's very, very impressive. Now, did you play sports? Uh, I, I got to believe you had a competitive family. I've done. Uh, I've gotten to know some of the members of, of your extended family, and over the years, as you know, my partner Fred Marison and I are. Well, I would just friend. say that we are amongst the greatest admirers and enthusiasts for your entire family, and well, I think you know that, and, I, and we adore well, Fred, you all. So, yeah, I would, well, I I adore Fred. Obviously, he's you know he sits on the uh, board of the center our Robert Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights and he's done sure. that for about 5 years and he's just been a, a wonderful wise person on the board um yes we were all very competitive we um i remember we used to have uh, touch f- football practice on every saturday and i my father used to say if you can touch the ball you can catch it <laughs> You know. But did you actually knock each other down and stuff like that? Or? Well, in touch football, you're really not supposed to knock each other down. You're I know, supposed but... to be fast and nimble. That was really the um, the goal, is to be fast and nimble. Um, so I did that, and I you know, I rode horses. I showed every weekend, and then I, I was a ski racer. So I I did all of that. I, and I actually went to summer racing school in, in Oregon at Mount Hood. We, it was terrific. We, uh, You know, I think... And, you know, I played on the varsity of teams. Although, interesting for, to, to think about, you know, when you see all these inc- 
incredible women play. I mean, my daughter, for instance, my youngest daughter now is captain of her rugby team, um, which is not exactly a gentle sport. Um, but when I was in high school, and this may be true, you may not have noticed it, but girls were not allowed to, pa- to run up and down the basketball court because it was felt that we were too weak to run that far. So this was, all before, this was before Title IX. So, uh, yeah. you know, in schools, sports was not as big a deal, but certainly in our family it was. Well, thank God for Title IX, number one. Yes. I've represented, uh, I've represented Sue Bird out of Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, out of the University of Connecticut. And no kidding. She could, run, she, she could run amongst the best, including men. So, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> that was a big deal. Let me ask you, I had Marla Thomas on the show, uh-huh. and I asked her what a normal day in her childhood was like at the dinner table. And she, it was, she was great, because Marlo, of course, grew up with everybody from Danny Thomas to Frank Sinatra to that whole group of people. And, and she said, we just had normal dinners. She said, but, you know, invariably somebody would walk in, and, you know, and it was funny, and it was just they tried to be as normal as they could with, with so much going on around them, and they were involved in so much. What was a typical... You know, uh, day like well, in, in your well, life. Well, first of all, right? I would never say that this was normal and that there was any pretense that our life was normal. I, I mean, I, that that would not be the case. Um, you know, we were we grew up in a very fortunate family, and uh, you know, there were people who helped out around the house a lot, and and so I just I I have to say I can't, I can't say it was particularly, and sure. you know. For a period of time, my father was on TV a lot, and then, you know, for most of our, my childhood. So, I, I mean, maybe that's normal for Marlo, but I, I, don't, I think most kids don't have that experience of really being a public figure right away. Um, so, I would say, you know, in the winter times, we have, you know, we were like other kids in this fact that we went to school every day. But although when we were very young, my mother would take us out for a month at a time to go to Florida, and I don't think that was particularly. <laughs> traditional either uh, but in the summer times we had i would say a quite different kind of childhood we we had um there were you know there were about 25 cousins and we had up in hyannisport and there were you know first of all my mother believed that we should go to mass every day so whenever the kids would be able to sleep in the summer she would get up us get us up at seven in the morning and take seven kids to daily mass wow. um then we'd come home and have breakfast and then at 9:30 we would have baseball throw and then at 10 we would either go riding or go sailing and then at 12 we would have a swimming lesson and we would go sailing again and for a picnic and then in the afternoon there was a base a softball game and then we had to read from 6 to 7 and then dinner was at 7 and at 8 we were free and we <laughs> know well, I'm going to ask you when we get later on about what, how you wound down, because after a day like that, you know, that's a pretty filled day. And, and I know for me, I come home and I go in a study and I turn on the baseball game and I zone out. And, and a lot of people don't understand that about me, but I, I love those kinds of things. And I love going to the movie alone or things right. like that. You know, it just allows me to kind of get away. And I think that's one reason I did this show. Yeah. was because I was able to, you know, meet people and, and go outside of myself, and that was important for me because I'm so busy every day with the right. stuff that, you know, we get absorbed in. No, that's, it's a, that's, a, that's a very, very good point. Well, when you have 11 kids and, and a family, um, it's pretty hard to find a place that's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I mean, for the first 
you know, till I was maybe 20, you know, you, there was no TV reception in Hyannisport. Right. So, I don't think there was that. I mean, let's see, what would quiet time be? Maybe playing miniature golf after dinner? <laughs> <laughs> alone or with other brothers? No, no and always sisters? with others. I, I, yeah. I think alone was not part of the, uh, part of our. <laughs> I like to read. I would probably. I was probably. I like to read a lot, so I would go off and read. But um, there was there was a lot of activity everywhere. Well, let me ask you. Uh, you know the the you know obviously um, one of the questions I always ask our guests is what were there were there any particular obstacles growing up you know that that helped shape you because this is shows about the journey of life. It's about whatever one would term their success, and it's not meant to be. Financial. It's more about the spiritual journey, and what are those things that you know help shape you? And you went through obstacles, which I always believe obstacles make you stronger if they don't kill you. If and, they don't uh, kill you, and they yeah. can really destroy a number of people. Yes. So that's that's you know that's easy for us who have been successful in some sense to say. By success, I mean just the normal, you know, judgment of success. But others sure. have had a much much tougher time. Um, Just in I mean, the sense of how unnormal my know, life was, you know, mommy would have, my mother would have parties in which she would then bring a donkey into the, into the house or let go a turkey into the party. I mean, there was, there was a madness. You were 12 when, when your uncle, when, when, when President John F. Kennedy died. Yes. And, I, and obviously that, I mean... You know, not, I mean, for everybody, it was uh, uh, just an unbelievable time. And in particular for you, I read in your book that your father wrote a letter to you. Yeah, and, my, my and father did write a letter. He was, you know, my father was very, very thoughtful about his children. He said, uh, he wrote it from the White House. He said, Dear Kathleen, um, you understand, this is the day that my uncle was buried. Dear Kathleen, uh, you seem to understand that Jack died and was buried today. As the oldest of the Kennedy grandchildren, you have a special responsibility, responsibility to Joe and to Jack. Um, uh, be kind to others and work hard for your country. Love, Daddy. Wow. I thought, you know, this is really right, quite an extraordinary letter because, as you know, when people are st- uh, have tragedy come upon them, they are often um, bitter or angry. I mean, you, you, I've worked in the criminal justice system. There's often a desire for revenge and, you know, a sense that how unfair is life. And, you know, that letter speaks to none of that. Uh, No bitterness, no sense of unfairness, no sense that um, of revenge. It was really a letter about love and kindness and working for your country and your family. So I think that his reaction, uh, um, my father's reaction to the... terrible, terrible tragedy, I think shaped, certainly shaped our whole family. And that is that you look for, you look to the future, you look to making a difference, you you look to, you know, tr- trying to help out rather than think on, you know, think about how terrible things are. And I, I, I would say that's a shaping narrative of, of my life that, you know, it, and when my father died, for instance, which was just horrendous. Um, you know, my father had come to my high school and spoken about the importance of going out and working on an Indian reservation. And you know, I, I had pl- 
planned to work that summer on the Navajo Indian Reservation, and right. my friend and my I actually ended up going to work in the Navajo Indian Reservation. I have to tell you, Jimmy, um, you know, your partner, Fred's father, died recently. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and, a week and a half ago. Yeah, and, you know, it was so fascinating to read about what he had done in his life. He had been focused on irrigation um, in Israel and irrigation on the Navajo Indian Reservation. And when I worked on the Indian Reservation, I had three sort of three sets of responsibilities. One was tutoring in English. One was uh, building a science center out of adobe bricks, which I'll describe to you in a minute. But one of them was to plant pistachio trees because um, that had been a successful cash crop in Israel. And the people who were running this program thought maybe that should be done on the Indian Reservation as well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Myerson had not come around with his irrigation system, and I realized after I left that nobody had actually watered those pistachio trees, and they had all died. And that was so great to read that he had developed a system that would provide irrigation. Well, I, I'm familiar with that and actually wanted to talk further because when we come back, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk about faith and the spiritual journey that has been right. a very important part of your life. Thank uh, you. You're welcome. We're, we're speaking with Kathleen uh, Kennedy Townsend. It's Jimmy Gould. And uh, we um, will return in a minute. The show is brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and Adspace Mall Networks. Please stay tuned. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. 
If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is a current life at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. This is Jimmy Gould. I'm here with Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Uh, Kathleen, before we took the break, we started to talk a little bit about the spiritual part of your life and, and the effect that uh, um, you know the letter had on you uh, that your father sent you after right. uh, President Kennedy was killed. I, wanna, I wanted to understand um, also about your strong sense of faith and, and, and purpose in improving the world and really where all that came from and, and kind of how it shaped you to the point where in your book you talk about having experienced the spiritual awakening that unfolded over the course of your life, and, and I'd like to really focus a little bit on that. Well, um, I, you know, I was, I'm very lucky, uh, I feel, that I was, grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic elementary schools and to, um, you know, high school, and, you know, my parents, we had nightly prayers, and we, you know, read the Bible each night, which when I told my grandmother, we, read the Bible, she said she was kind of horrified. She said, Catholics don't read the Bible. This was pre-Vatican II. Um, we were supposed to learn most of our religion from the priests, not from our own reading of the Bible. But what what all this gave me, and, you know, we alluded to it earlier, is that when tragedy strikes, that we have a... a I was fortunate, I think, to have a context to fit it into that, um, you know, that there was no ever belief in my life that that life was supposed to be fair or life was supposed to be easy. Um, it, I, I always knew it as a struggle and difficulty. And the question is, how do you? The question is, you know, how do you deal with the, the difficulties? Do you? Um, and I think I learned from watching my grandmother Rose and my own mother, who still goes to daily mass, that. Uh, prayer uh, can be an, a great source of solace and a great source of strength, as well as a challenge um, to where we, you know, are taught to examine our conscience and ask ourselves, you know, are we using our talents in the best way possible? Are we making this this brief life on earth as as meaningful as possible? And I think, you know, I I think when you're you're struck as I have been in my life with, you know, stark, stark tragedy, you know, with uh, death and or at many deaths, not just the ones you know, of, but many people who have been close to me have died. You, you really have to think, you know, what, why are you here and what, what, what can you do to um, make each moment matter? What struck, what has struck me in, 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 in getting to know you and, and, and also in reading your book and, and obviously we've spent time together, the, uh, is, is the way you took, um, a lot of tragedy that your family endured, uh, publicly and, and quick and, and where you weren't prepared for it at the time because it happened so quickly without any, you know, warning, obviously. Uh, and, you know, it, it just is amazing to me how you, uh, have, have dealt with it, uh, how your family's dealt with it, how you've overcome it, and how you've given so much back. I mean, I read that list in the beginning, and it's like, my God, it's like, how do you have any time in the day for anything? And obviously, I look at 
because in, in my own way, I look at these things as blessings in a strange way. I, that may not be the right word, obviously. I, when you I actually don't think it's the right word. I, I, I'm really object to, to people who say, oh, just, you know, there's, God has a reason for everything, and, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a reason, or this is a blessing. I am very against that. I think our country would have, I think that my father's death and my uncle's death is a tragedy, and there's no good thing that has come out of it. I think our country and our family would have been far better off had they lived. Um, and I'd say that, you know, and I think back at Abraham Lincoln, I think the country would have been, again, far better off had he lived. I, I, am, I am never a fan of that. I, how how I do you feel, really uh, and I think maybe case. my word is that it's not a blessing what happened, but you, you've turned something that was very uh, hard on you into giving so much back. And, and the transition is not that easy for a lot of people. And so is it the faith that carried you through that? I think obviously I don't think it's a blessing when things like that happen. I, don't, I agree with you on that level. Yeah. But, but how, do you turn, how do you take that and make it a positive where so many people have so much trouble doing that, I think? I don't know if they have that much trouble. I mean, I, I mean maybe you're right, Jimmy, but I have found... Um, uh, Enormous resilience, um, no, with people. I, I, I you know, I, I think some people are lucky and some people are are less lucky in in their genes and in the, and in the sort of the and the sort of the mega narrative of their lives. I think that if you have a mega narrative, you know, this sort of, if you have a narrative that says life is unfair, um, that we are we are, it, it's tough and that we are judged by what we do for the least among us. Um, we are judged and we judge ourselves by what contribution we make to our country. That, that in a sense, helps us deal um, with, uh, with tragedy. I mean, if you, you know, so I think it's, you know, what is the story? If you tell yourself, uh, you know, when people get upset because somebody in their family died because they were struck by a drunk driver or they got cancer and how unfair life is. I I don't know what kind of world they thought they lived in that life would be fair. So I guess I I grew up never thinking that, you know, it it would be. I mean, I grew up, as you know, praying every day for my uncle who had died in World War II and my aunt Kathleen, who I was named after, who had died in in a plane crash and about four years after I, you know, when I was about four years old, my grandparents died in a plane crash. So I guess because I had grown up so early with so such tragedy. And what I found is that, you know, if you work in the inner cities, many people have lives like mine, you know, to tell you the truth. They may not be as famous, but sure. there's, you know, if you look at, so, and so I've, I've seen, you know, I don't think I'm special in that sense. And if you go to places in, you know, in other places around the world uh, where there's been so many wars and, and political upheaval, I meet lots of people who's, who's, who could tell a narrative that is very similar to, to, to my family's. It's just in the United States, most people, um, luckily, uh, we've been at peace. Uh, we have good medicine, and most people in our country... T- have lived longer, and I've talked to. I remember t- 
10 or 15 years ago talking to a friend who said she's never known anybody close to her who's died. I went to a funeral recently, and she was, she was you know, maybe 55 years old. She had never had a close friend who had died. So that's possible in this country. It's probably not possible in any other country in the world. I, I ask you because, you know, I think a lot of it depends on, on your experiences growing up because I grew up, I, I got up on Christmas morning at the age of five, and some woman I didn't know told me my mother died overnight. Oh, that's and, terrible. How, was she know, sick? Yeah, well, she I didn't know her very well because I was so little, but she died from a brain tumor, and in those days oh they God. didn't know much about cancer and stuff like that. And yeah. my dad was gone, and my brother and sister were gone, and I'm alone in a house with some woman Why I didn't know. Why were they know. gone? They were at the hospital. And, oh. and and I wake up in the morning, and it's Christmas morning, and the only thing that's on my mind is to run downstairs and open up the Christmas presents. Oh, my I mean, God. Right, and so I get up, I bounce out of bed, and I'm running down the stairs, and this woman stops me. She said, I just wanted to tell you. A woman who you don't even know? No, because they needed to leave. They left somebody behind to take care of me. Oh. And all I know is this woman, I'm looking at Now, maybe I knew her a little bit, but I didn't really know her. You know, right. it's like, and. She says, well, I have to, I feel terrible to tell you this, but your mother died. And it was like, oh. And then I went downstairs and opened up my presents. And it was kind of like, I think back on a lot because That's it had so a huge strange. effect on me. I'm sure it did. You know, in my life, in fact, um, I know a lot of people don't talk about it, but I, I went on and through my life not really caring too much about the future. I mean, it had that impact on me, and I would create my own world, and I would go out and if somebody told me the sky was blue, I was going to go out and make sure it was either blue or I was going to define what color it was. And I took on every challenge that came my way, and I built this huge world in a much different way. I mean, uh, nothing was impossible. I believed in anything was possible. I believed in independence, and I had this very kind of, maybe it was a shell, maybe I just turned inward, maybe I created my own world. I just know that that, you know, I'm 27 years sober today, and I'm sure that a lot of what I went through in my life, and I don't mind talking about it, because I do think a lot of things shape you, and as I started to take charge of my life, and it actually occurred after my father died, what it did was it allowed me to start to believe in a future. I had kids, and mm -hmm. I started to believe that we needed to give back, and we needed to make the world a better place. But it, it, I think a lot of, in kind of the spiritual part and context of what you're talking about, people suffer these things every moment of the day. Every, right. You know, and, and, and you watch on the news, and you've had more contact with this, you know, even with the State Department now, what we're watching just on CNN every night in Syria and, yeah. and what we watched in Libya. It's like it's mind-boggling to me that human beings are treating people the way they are, and, and there's got to be something there that we all can do to change the world. I've had so many different people on about, you know, our water problems, you know, Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter, and I've talked to so many different people about how, to, how do we make the world a better place. And what I admire about you is that you've really worked so hard in your life to change and make this a better place. And, and the question I'm really asking which I ask myself all the time, which is why I went to Kilimanjaro and why I went to Africa to try to get out of my comfort zone, because I didn't have to do it. I wanted to do it, and I wanted to change and be better, is that awakening that you went through spiritually in your life, you know, was so, was a blessing. Uh, maybe not the things that caused it or the way you went through it, obviously, but 
but the fact that you could find this place mm-hmm. that made you believe and, and the faith was such a big part of it. I think that is the thing that's troubling me and so many people today is that a lot of people have lost, I think, a lot of hope. And I think that's the part that we got to get right, because until we get it right, it just isn't going to get any better. There are a lot of people out of work and a lot of people suffering, and I that think is that's true. Well, I think you've raised, what you've done is you've raised a number of different ways of thinking about this. Number one, um, there, is, there is a lot of suffering and there is a lot of people out of work. And those of us who are lucky enough to have a job or ha- have an income, um, which you, what I think we need, we, what, what you're asking us to do, which is so brilliant and kind and wonderful, is to open our hearts to other people rather than yes. think just only of ourselves. And um, I think that's, that's clearly, you know, what I think our religious traditions teach us, and I actually think that's what democracy is at its best, is, you know, that we're, we, we are all here together, and it's not just me, me, myself, and I. And that's one of the things that you, that you raise. And then the other question is, how do we help... Um, you know, A, create conditions in which people do have jobs, and two, how do we help those who are depressed or sad or wondering? Um, how, do you, how do we reach them to give them some hope so that they can go forward? Well, when you, when you went to the reservation, I think it was in Rough Rock, Arizona, <laughs> You know, is that right? So, yes, it was. Good for you. Where, where, where is that exactly? Yeah, well, it's in it's in Arizona. It's sort of the <laughs> northern part of Arizona. Chinle, I don't know if you know where Chinle is, Rough Rock. But uh, I have to tell you, you know, it was just this is kind of off the subject a little bit, but kind of a wonderful story. So I built this in this um, the first science center that had ever been built on an Indian reservation. Wow. I built it out of adobe bricks, which you. If you don't remember how to build adobe bricks, you mix together mud and horse manure. And my job was to stomp around in the mud and horse manure, and then eventually I squished the, the, the tech, you know, the, the stuff and poured it into blocks and then made bricks out of it. Um, so I did that when I was 16. This is 1968. And then when I joined the Justice Department, you know, 30 years later, um, we had a conference on Indian, Indian gaming, and there were number of people from the Indian Reservation came, including from Rough Rock, and they they assured me that that, that science center was still standing 30 years later. Wow. So that was very, well, very encouraging. Well, the culture of the Navajo, obviously, is very spiritual, and, and, and we've talked about your spirituality. I mean, is that what also helped shape you at that time with your Well, I don't know there? if he, you know, the, I don't know if I could say it's the Navajo um Spirituality that helped shape me, as you probably know, there were a lot of problems on the Indian yeah. reservation, um, which we could go into, but we don't need to right now. But I do think um, which, what helped shape you and what you talked so so eloquently about was your trip to Kilimanjaro. I think being on an Indian reservation, seeing nature, um, sort of being away from the world that you're accustomed to, is sort of like a, tr- a trek into the wilderness, um, and that gives you time to think and to be, you know, alone with your thoughts and to be alone with a, you know, sort of a, a spiritual being because you see the beauty and the, the openness and the, the grandeur of the world around you. I think that's, that, that can be quite, um, quite 
enlightening and opening. You know, I, I, um, one of the things that I found was the first um, night that I was in Kilimanjaro, and, and I was really taken by it. I walked outside my tent. I was in a one-man tent, and it was just a few of us on the expedition. And I don't know. I wasn't. I was eleven thousand feet or whatever I was, and and you know, on my way up to nineteen three, and the um, um, I went outside, and Venus was staring right at me. It mm-hmm. was like, I mean, they, there were so many stars in the sky, and so yeah, many. Yeah, isn't it amazing? It's amazing, you know, and it, it's kind of like, well, God, I don't see that back home, and you know, I'm standing out there. I was out there for an hour, literally just mesmerized, and then of course I ended up getting hypothermia because I didn't realize how cold it was. <laughs> but I know, well, I wasn't. I wasn't. That is quite... not a good idea. <laughs> I was there to learn. I hope so, your you listeners know. are saying this to you, Jimmy. Take <laughs> care of yourself. <laughs> but I, I ended up, you know, continuing on the journey. But what I, what I saw was very. It's beautiful in, in a way because you're seeing this, you know, first of all, the Chaka tribesmen and the million people that lived at the base of the mountain and what I saw. But, you know, I didn't see any snow until 17,500 feet. I saw none. And I talked about this with Alexandra Cousteau when she was on the show, and she uh-huh. said the same thing. I mean, clearly there's this big mix thing going on about is there global warming or no global warming well first of all you got to be living under a rock to not believe that there's something going on right that's number one so and number two and it infuriates me when i hear the discussion but number two there is an overpopulation issue which is a, a similar issue to what's going on in other parts of the world you know and certainly in china and and theirs is actually backfiring on them because they got nobody to take care of their elderly, you know, because they only limit it to one child. So right. when that child's working, there's nobody at home with someone who needs help and care. But my question to you is, how do you get the, the, the macro picture when there's a lot of micro issues going on and you've been in politics your whole life and around it your whole life and in service your whole life? Uh, how do you mix this thing? How do you get get the right answers when you're looking at the macro picture of the, the the whole planet is affected by everything we do today. And then you deal with the issues, whether they be with the Navajo, they be in the inner cities, they be in the in the Syrias of the world and the you know, how do you get yourself to kind of be um, you know, how to get it right? Because that's really what it's all about when you're giving service. That is such a great question, and I'm glad you put it in those ways, because what I think is very important is that it it is critical to think about the whole world and not to be satisfied that you just help a single individual, that you really think of the systems that need to be changed, not just um, one person. You know, I'll just tell you a story. I was at one point working at a, you know, helping kids when I was lieutenant governor um, in an after-school program. And I remember hearing this man speak who said, you know, they've told me that if I help one person, that's enough. And I'm saying, eh, you know, I played NFL football. If you made one goal, not enough. you got to win. If there are 100 kids in my program, I want every every kid, all 100, to do well. I'm not just satisfied with helping one person. So I like this notion that you really have to – you have to set big goals, and it's number one. And then you can understand that what you're doing is helping on a particular goal. But the, one of the ways to set big goals and to realize that they're important is to get involved in politics because, very frankly, that's what, you know, the President of the United States is one of the most powerful people 
on Earth and, you know, make sure that you're involved in that campaign or that, that effort because that's really critical. Or, or working for an NGO that really has an, an international um, uh, agenda because you, solving, you know, throwing out your own trash is nice and it make, make you feel good, but it's not going to solve the problem of global warming. Well, my wife would agree with you because she she's a huge believer in and she's a lawyer and she's also a big believer in the NGO uh, programs right. that are being created because you have to come at it from from really both sides and absolutely you know, it, and it's important to ha- you know to do the the individual help but the fact is we have got huge international problems and uh, and it's important to know that. Politics is a way that you shape it. You know, people, I think one of the things that has happened over the last 30 years, Jimmy, is people have said, oh, politics is dirty, or, you know, I can't get involved, or, you know, it's so tough. And I, and I say, look, we're sending young men who are dying, who are, or young men and women now, um, who are dying, who are losing their limbs, who are suffering from PS, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. and we're asking them, and what are we doing? So... We have to, we have to, you know, get involved. Well, you would agree with me because we uh, certainly the the aura or the the uh, difference of how we view the military today and how we viewed it when your father was running for president uh, are just so different. I mean, you know, well, you know uh, I, I I was a product of Vietnam and right. and opposed to the war in Vietnam and. And we'll tell you something I never told you, but I actually worked for your father in the University of Wisconsin. Did you really? Yes. Wow. And, and I remember when he visited there, and I remember, you know, uh, how dedicated I was to his cause and to what he believed in. And, I mean, I was just, you know, and I was at the University of Wisconsin, which became one of the most radical schools in the country, along with Berkeley and Columbia. And, you know, I, I, I you know, every week there was a different you know, at that time, Dow Chemical on campus or somebody making napalm or somebody doing this. And, and it was a pretty uh, interesting thing. If you had long hair, you were pulled over by the police and people hated the military and nobody believed in anything and everybody lost their desire to have a future and drugs were rampant and all that stuff. And here today, uh, I went to the opening of the Reds game yesterday and, you know, we spent probably the first 20 minutes with tributes to the military and and everywhere they went, people were standing and clapping and realizing that we're putting our, our young people through through some very bitter tests right now that make, I mean, they're just unbelievable. And we had General Hugh Shelton, who's a very good friend of mine on the show, and, you know, he said the same thing. We're not equipped to deal with, with, with what's happening and, and with, with our young people coming home with the types of injuries that they're suffering in, in these wars. Because in the old, older days, they would not have survived, and now they're surviving, and we're not ready to take it on. We, we're not prepared for it. And these are the things that really trouble me because I do feel a sense of responsibility because we are trying to protect the right of certain of, of people, of freedom, and of things like that. And I didn't feel that the same way when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. Right. I think there is a difference. Although, you know, my, um, I'm just, unfortunately, I, I was just talking to my daughter who goes out with a guy who is a captain in the special ops in the Marines. Mm-hmm. They went to a fundraiser last night in LA and the, the, the group there, I think were 
uh, really made fun of the military, and she just wow. was so horrified that she was there with her boyfriend. And so I think, I mean, on the whole, I think we do it much better, but it's not, it's not universal. I haven't seen that. I, that's a first because everywhere I've gone and seen, I haven't seen that. And in airports, I watch people go up to people and, right. and as they're on their way to Afghanistan or whatever and, and, and you know, and, 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 and shake their hand and thank them. I mean, because we really should be grateful for what they're doing. And, and, and you know, we really, there are so many threats in the world to the types of lives and freedom that we have. And in a heartbeat, it can change. And, you know, I, I know you recently uh, became the senior advisor to the State Department, and I was going right. to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, you know, what is your view of what's going on in in, uh, in the Middle East right now, and, and whether and how we should participate? Oh, that's a really, really tough, tough. I know. Issue. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I, you know, I, uh, I mean, I think that it's. I think there are a number of people who said, you know, we got to tamp down the. The, the rhetoric of how great it is to go to war because, you know, war in the Middle East um, could turn into a conflagration that could be very, very uh, disturbing. Um, I mean, I, I, everybody was excited about Iraq, and I think that most of us would agree now that it wasn't really, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of people died um, who, who really... It's really, really sad, the tragedy yeah. on that, that. So, I mean, I think that we need, it's, it's just tough. Um, but the United States, you know, is putting sanctions on people, uh, on Iraq and, I th- uh, and on Iran, which I think is, that can be helpful. It might not be. I mean, we've had sanctions on North Korea for, you know, years and years and years, and it doesn't seem to have affected them very much. So, I think it's tough. I think paying attention to it helps. Um, understanding why, uh, you know, people don't get along. Um, and I think, really, I mean, just really, I think the best thing we could do for the Middle East is become self-sufficient and not care about their oil, and that will mean that they wouldn't have as much power over everybody. Well, I completely, uh, that, that, that would <laughs> that be a great That is actually sort of my best start, answer. I mean, it's not as, <laughs> this is sort of, but, and I do think it's actually interesting if you look at what is going on with the, the growth of, of natural gas and oil in the United States through the fracking process. Um, Absolutely. It, it will mean that I think over the next 20 years, only 13% of our oil will need to be imported. We can import it mostly from Mexico and from Canada. And that will, I hope, diminish the power of the Middle East because if they didn't have oil, we wouldn't pay so much attention to them. Well, I think that's true. You know, true, Alan Greenspan think... said we went to yeah. war in, in Iraq over oil. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what are we saying to our, to our people? We'd rather drive cars and have our children live? So I, I think that we really, the more we can get self-sufficient in our energy, the better off the Middle East will be because they won't have so much power. Let me switch gears. What do you think sec? of that? Uh, I think that's a great answer, and I think that, that that's the start is not to be dependent upon them. I think the second part problem is we're always going to care what happens to people. We're a global village, uh, and, it, and, and we're always going to care how people are treated. Uh, we're not going to be isolationists. I don't believe that that will ever happen for this country. I think certain people would like to say that they are. Well, but, you know, if you and I are watching TV and we're seeing people get brutalized in Syria... It's a tough situation. 
and I have trouble eating my dinner. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but you know, people are people, and I don't care what country they live in. And I think that, you know, there are just uh, these are difficult times and difficult answers. And when you talked in the beginning about life not being fair, you know, read the road less traveled, and and you know, nobody promised that it would be uh, that life wouldn't be difficult. It is yeah. difficult, and to some people, it's even more difficult. And I think it, what it takes is a big heart, and it takes uh, rolling your sleeves up. And that's something your family has done forever. And that's why I admire and, and, and why I wanted you on the show, because I wanted our listeners to understand that there are people like you and what you do and the way you contribute is, is just so vital to the, the future of, of our world. So I thank you for that. I really do. I want to I ask you, I want to kind of move into a, because we only have a, actually, I've really enjoyed this. I could do this for hours and hours with you because I really respect you. I just have to you. tell you one thing. Just as you climbed Kilimanjaro, for my 50th birthday, I climbed Mount Rainier. Not as high as Kilimanjaro, but I climbed it with my great friend from first grade who we had climbed the Matterhorn together. And we, when we climbed Mount Rainier, each of us brought one of our children with us. It was really well, it's great. actually a more difficult <laughs> climb. If you, you know what's different is that it's not as high. You've got to be a little bit more technical for Rainier because I have some very good friends who climbed it, and they, they said it was a tough climb. Yeah, well, it, I think it, they're exaggerating the technique. The Matterhorn's much more technical. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I can just tell you, at my age, the altitude ate me alive, so it, it, Kilimanjaro was tough, but I, I, no, I applaud you for Rainier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll get you, and we'll go to Everest together. Okay. How's that one for you? Well, you um, know, that, that would be great. <laughs> let me ask you just a couple questions, because we only have a few minutes left. Um, how has all the things you've gone through in your life, and, uh, and you know, obviously experiencing the tragedies, and the way you've overcome it, and the things you've done, helped shape how you've raised your four children with your husband, David? Um, well, I'm, I've been very, very lucky um, in with David, uh, who's a very kind uh, person and has wonderful, wonderful values. You know, he te- he's a professor and he teaches at, at St. John's. St. John's. Right. And, you know, what I think we, we've done is we've said to each of the children, um, you know, we trust you. Um, you're, you're making your life. So that, for instance, when one of my daughters went about 10 years ago, went hitchhiking around Uganda for three weeks, um, and I was wow. really scared, but she did it. And so that had to be a tough swallow. <laughs> it was really tough. Or oh then she God. went to Central. I got to tell you this other story. So then she went to Central America, and I didn't hear from her for about five weeks. And I know that she was traveling with some guy. So I called. I tracked down the guy's parents <laughs> and said, "Have you heard from your son?" As I haven't heard from my daughter. And he, the parents said, "Well, you know, we had another son who went to." Uh, hiking in the Himalayas, and we they, he didn't call us over Thanksgiving or Christmas, so we're kind of accustomed to our children not calling me. <laughs> so I felt... well, I, I'll tell you something. <laughs> when I went over to Africa, I called General Shelton and say I'm going over to Africa. But if my kid was going to, I was because one of my questions I was going to ask you is, are you a protective parent? <laughs> You've now answered that and told me that you're an amazing parent. My kids. My boys will probably come in and move in with you because I'm always telling them, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because, you know, I did all those things, and I know how, how many issues I went through. 
Let me let me ask you. We got a couple minutes left. I've really enjoyed having you on the show, and I, I hope <laughs> it's been fun. I, I hope you'll maybe fun. come back at totally a later great fun. date. Yes, absolutely great. <laughs> so I ask every one of my guests in the next minute or so. We got, and it's kind of a silly question, but it actually has a deeper meaning. With everything you've been through, as you look back on your journey, what do you feel the meaning of life is? Well, I think. Each of us creates their own meaning and their own, as I would say, story about why they're here and what they're trying to do. And we can we create that in partnership or in community with those we love and, and the traditions that we come from. So my my belief is that what our best meaning is that what we what do we do to help somebody? How do we love others and how do we make sure that they have a better life? It's a great answer. Uh, you'd be amazed at the different answers I get, but it seems the common thread, which has, gives me hope, is that we all want to leave the place a better place than when we came, and we right. want to give back, and, right. and you've done that. I, I, I've really enjoyed our time together. I appreciate your sharing your journey with our listeners. Uh, we have a big audience. It's growing every day, and I know everybody was excited to hear about your life and what you've been through. We're so appreciative that Kathleen Kennedy Townsend has shared her journey with us. I want to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel, our sponsors, Smart Water and Ohio Midwestern College. And please join us next Friday when uh, Margaret Buchanan, the president and publisher of Inquire Media, who was the first woman to hold a position of president and publisher since the founding of the Inquire in 1841, wow. will be joining us. And so until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And Kathleen, I'm going to insist you come back because I only got through about half of this show with you. (laughs) And uh, we'll talk about other fun subjects. And on behalf of all of our listeners, I thank you so much for your service to this country. Thank you. And thanks for doing the show. And uh, happy Passover and happy Easter. Same to you. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.